industrial policy and investing into industry is a really hard thing for Americans to get their heads around. We grew up with that just not even being a thing. We have the cheat codes. It's like ridiculous <laughs> how much we like we were given the cheat code to win the game and we're just like uh, I don't know. Our third episode in the China Talk Industrial Policy series. Check out our first two with Rob Atkinson of ITIF and Jose of Nintil. Today we have the founding team of New Consensus and two architects of the Green New Deal, Shoykat Chakrabarti and Zach Exley. Shoykat was AOC's first chief of staff, and in a prior life, he was the third employee and founding engineer at Stripe. Zach Exley called him the one emotionally healthy person in politics, but he said that a few years ago, so to be determined. <laughs> yeah, I might want to uh, revise. <laughs> Zach is a longtime progressive Democratic operative. They both worked on the 2016 Bernie campaign and helped found brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. Co-hosting today is Vishnu Kanan, a tech and international affairs junior fellow at Carnegie. Welcome to China Talk, everyone. Thanks for having us. Great Lots to of be enthusiasm. here. Like the energy, guys. So we're, so we're recording this on March 9th, 2021, three days after the Senate passed a $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus package, potentially heralding a new era of fiscal activism, exciting fiscal things happening from the Congress and executive branch. So Shoykat and Zach, what were the main factors that led to this transition away from uh, real gridlock when it comes to Congress being interested in spending money? Well, there's still uh, gridlock. It's important, I think, to note that this bill got zero Republican votes. So it's not like we've gone this grand bipartisan wonderland where everyone's powering together in Congress now. But I think the interesting question is, like, how did Democrats come so far from the Obama era and their level of ambition and scale that they're willing to do and also, should they be going further? Like, will this lead to more ambition or will this lead to less ambition after they try this out? Because I don't actually know if this is yet generation defining. Let's maybe start with a, a bit of history on the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s Democrats. What were the driving factors that led the Clintons and Obamas of the world to curtail for what they saw the government's role in promoting growth? Actually, we were just talking before the show. We were very excited to answer your question from the last episode about why did you grow up as a neocon or neoliberal or whatever you want to call it. Neoclassical. And like, yeah, why yeah. did you, why were you so against a role for government in the economy? And that's something that Troikot and I have been obsessed with for the past few years. And our favorite book on this is Invisible Hands. Well, I was going to say, because the history really dates back to before the 80s and 90s, like to really understand the Democratic Party of the 80s and 90s, a lot of people go back to Reagan, but really you go back even 40 years before that. At the end of World War II, we had just seen this triumph of essentially government and our market economy working together to accomplish this huge task. And there was this fight for who gets the credit for that. How will that get defined? And the entire corporate world at that point was really terrified that things just worked a little too well. And Keynesianism was going to be the dominant philosophy for the next several hundred years. And they got to work on this project of trying to, to create a new worldview. What the project that eventually ended up as like the Washington Consensus. And there was a meeting on Mount Pelerin, Mount Pelerin, I always forget it was Mount or Mount Pelerin. And there's a Mount Pelerin society where they came together to try to figure out what like the basic tenets of their project was going to be. And all the stuff that basically turned into right-wing doctrinaire economics that Reagan 
managed to win on because of a crisis in the 1970s, because of the stagflation crisis in 1979, where the, the dominant economic kind of ideology at the time was unable to explain it. And the Reaganites and the right-wingers came in and they said, this is why it's happening. We can fix it. We can make this better. And people should really read Invisible Hands. It's a really good book because there's a very interesting kind of history here. But the main point I want to get across here is it wasn't just an accident. It was the the deliberate and multi-decade effort of a group of people to create a new economic hegemony. And that was what the Democrats had to respond to in the 90s. And the Democrats decided instead of fighting with a different worldview to adopt parts of that worldview, and the DLC Clinton-era Democrats were born from that. And this is a global trend as well, right? You also see this across many of the sort of center-right parties in Europe. Yeah, I would say you, this has a, been a constant thing ever since the beginning of capitalism. The very first truly capitalist economy, Britain, was built with tons of state investment into industry to, to catch up and, and get ahead of the Netherlands, which was the first industrial economy. And and then just it just went from there. And, and each country, as they saw this power rise next door in one or another neighbors, then they would start doing the exact same thing and invest in their industries. It's how every single industrial economy was built, especially ours. And But then once you have one of the most powerful industrial economies in the world, then you want to go for free trade. And a great economist, a Cambridge economist named Hajun Chang, who I'm a huge fan of, he wrote a book called Kicking Away the Ladder from the perspective of developing countries, saying, look, you got to let us invest and build our economies up. But now in the U.S. and increasingly parts of Europe and Japan, we're now developing nations again. Our means of making a living is eroding away to the point where living standards are actually declining in some ways for some groups. So we need to start you know, investing back in our economy. And, and I want to say one more thing, though. The story really goes way back. Like I was saying, you can look in, in the 1800s, there were these fights between free trade and developmentalism in England and every country. But in America, the story of where we got to today really starts in the 20s with people like the DuPonts and some other big rich families. And as, as socialism was just becoming the norm in the world, they started to feel like they were real minorities. And back then, during the progressive era, science was ascendant and everybody was thinking we should just have philosopher kings run everything and central planning was going to be the obvious way to go. And so some of these big, some of these CEOs and business leaders were like really trying to find a way to fight against that. Yeah, and, there, and one other key element that I, I think um, is important about that era is the the reaction to World War One was this huge anti-corporate reaction about war profiteers. And it was a villainization of the people who made money off the war effort, which all these corporate leaders, they saw this as, oh my God, we have no PR plan for this. We have no plan to show how we actually helped win this war and all the stuff we did. And so they really got to work trying to define their role, especially in World War II took off. And the New Deal government, I think, did a lot of great stuff in terms of marketing its efforts in the New Deal program, but it didn't actually do a great job of marketing its efforts in the war mobilization. And the companies capitalized on that. And as you pointed out, it was an international movement. It wasn't just American corporatists. This was CEOs and business leaders all around the world who were fighting a worldwide, at that point, economic consensus of how nations developed, how nations should be spending on their means of making a living, etc. Keynesianism wasn't just an American thing, of course. And people like Hayek were brought in by these, Hayek, sorry. Part of the story was their university professorships paid for and bought by corporate leaders at 
for example, the University of Chicago, which was a major intellectual bulwark of this new economic movement. And, but also that they got folks into places like Harvard and Princeton and, and all over the world to the point where eventually this economic thinking, especially after Reaganism, stopped being like two sides of a debate or anything like that. It started to become, you start treating economics like science, like math. Oh, if we just do these things right and, and model these things exactly, we'll just figure it out. And, and some priests at the top can just control a few levers and, and the rest works itself out. And that's what I learned in economics at Harvard, for example, right? Um, no one's teaching the actual history of how nations get rich, except perhaps Professor Ha Jun Chang in Cambridge and a few other professors elsewhere. But economic departments are not teaching this. They're not teaching you how countries actually develop, how countries can continue developing, and how nations go from being poor to developed and, and how that's happened in virtually every nation. To answer your question of how did you get brainwashed as a young person growing up in America, they, there are some really great stories about how America's mind was actually changed. And one was these networks of employers who were pushing back, like Shoykot was talking about, they would put comic strips in pay envelopes because everybody used to get a pay envelope at the end of the month or the end of the week. And they actually had comic strips about how capitalism worked and stuff like that. And, and Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, was actually broken down into comic book form. And you can find it on the web if you Google comic book Road to Serfdom. And, and it's really quite amazing. And so that was one, one of the kinds of things that was happening. But, but, but another thing was they brought Hayek over Hayek was the grandfather of all this thinking, one of them. And, and he wrote this book that he really didn't expect anybody to read because it was so against the grain at the time uh, called Road to Serfdom. He wrote it during World War II. And some of these right-wingers who were organizing in America, they said, oh, we got to get you over here for a speaking tour. He was expecting to go to you know, academic audiences with a few dozen people. But an old lefty who turned right-winger named Max Eastman happened to be working at the Reader's Digest. And so he said, I'm going to do a condensed version of Road to Serfdom. And he sent it out from Reader's Digest. <laughs> and this, the way it was back then, and the way it still almost is in the half of the country I live in, is everybody got the Reader's Digest. And so literally all Americans read this book. And it's the condensed version edited by Max Eastman. And Hayek was actually furious about how the book had been simplified and condensed in all the wrong ways and everything, but he went all around the country to audiences of thousands. And that's just one of the many things. An another thing to see is, is uh, Milton Friedman on the Donahue show in uh, like 1979. So like right before Reagan was coming in. And it's an incredibly persuasive interview that he does. And I was nine at the time. So I, I imagine I watched it and I must have absorbed a, a lot of these ideas. I grew up with a lot of these ideas. So when you were asking like, these ideas were everywhere. They're just like part of what you grew up with. Like it's all this stuff that added up. And uh, unfortunately there was like no alternative. Yeah, I mean, I haven't I have not read the book. It's on the list now. I feel like there is more to this than just corporate conspiracy. It, it seems like there was something that fit the time and, you know, it's not like America wasn't growing from 1945 to the early 2000s. Like we had a pretty good run. No, I, I, but I think Shoykot mentioned there was also this failure of the left to have any new ideas, right? And so the, the socialist parties and social democratic parties and the old democratic party in the U.S., they wanted to overregulate everything. They just wanted to break up the big companies. And that's all they could say. That's all they could think of. And they had actually totally forgotten about industrial policy and forgotten about investment. They had moved on to other things. And, and for some parts of the left were hung up on 
weird new branches of Marxism that were just completely irrelevant. And they just had nothing. The left and the left, the center left just had nothing. And into that void stepped this neoconservative movement. Right. And I don't actually think of it as, I guess it is a conspiracy, but it was a conspiracy as much as any political organization is a conspiracy. And you're right. It didn't work for 40 years because there was no opportunity for it to work. Things were going pretty great. And really, I think there was a politically smart move by Reagan and this movement to capitalize on stagflation in the late 70s. And that was combined with there's all these the stories of unions were being the big problem to cause this stuff. And it just worked. And the one, one part of this that informs some of our thinking is these crises, these kind of acute pain points are moments where a big part of the country is ready to listen. And of course, there's like also this constant crisis, as Zach Sora pointed out, many people in our country's quality of life has declined. And especially when you start seeing future generations doing worse than your, yourself. And we see these trend lines on average, but if you cut out like the top 10% of the country, start, a lot of these trend lines start looking quite bad. And then people really do start looking for new answers and combine that with more acute crises like the freeze in Texas or COVID. Those are moments where people are willing to have their minds changed, I think. And so you kind of have to be ready in that moment to offer an answer, ideally an answer that actually solves the problem, not just an answer for a political gain. With that, we come to the Green New Deal. Give us a bit of an intellectual history of where this sort of different vision came from. I think that part of the story of how the Green New Deal became such a big thing in policy circles and progressive and democratic policy circles is one example that makes the point that a pretty small number of people actually can really change where people's heads are at. So it's not that the neoliberal revolution was a conspiracy. It's just that a relatively small number of people working toward a goal can actually have a really big impact. And part of the way it happens is in these moments. And in, in the United States, in our system, we have a system that kind of allows for new kind of insurgent candidates to come in, whether that's Ronald Reagan, who actually was an, an insurgent candidate in, in the presidency in his career, or AOC. And, and so there was this unique moment with AOC's campaign and, and her going into Congress with folks like Schweikat and Corbin Trent and some other amazing staffers around her that just created this opportunity to float an entirely new uh, kind of idea. And that moment, what it uncovered, and even though we were hoping it was true, we were surprised that it was true, was that this huge number of groups and organizations and leaders and even members of Congress were totally ready for this sweeping industrial policy kind of approach. Right. I'd say more, most importantly, because we timed that somewhat intentionally, but not super intentionally, just because there were so many factors involved with the Democratic presidential primaries. Right. And we saw this moment where the the Democrats running for president already were trying to outdo each other, trying to be the one with the new ideas. It became this race of being the one with the new ideas. It was actually like one of the most idea-focused primaries I've ever seen. It wasn't about what color suit anyone was wearing. And so into that mix, like when the Green New Deal dropped, we were hoping that would create this kind of race to match or exceed and outdo each other. And that's what ended up happening. And that, and that forced Biden into taking a moderate position, which was his $2 trillion climate change plan, which was still massive compared to anything anyone had ever proposed. But it was like the tiniest proposal of anybody on that stage. And, and so there, it's a pretty long story how like the Green New Deal came to be and what specifically a sit-in in Pelosi's office was the big thing that we tried to orchestrate to, to get into national spotlight. It just happened to work. It could have just as easily have 
gone nowhere. But but it was a few risks, you know, that AOC was willing to take. Let's yeah, yeah, let's stay in that let's stay in that moment for a little bit. What was the sort of uh calculus behind how to approach trying to change the debate on these topics as a very young first term congresswoman? Yeah. So just to give people context, right? Like where the climate change debate was at around the time that AOC won her first race. Most of D.C. was focused on what the right price of carbon should be for a cap-and-trade or carbon tax. And that's the think tank circles. Much of the activist world was focused on stopping new fossil fuel projects because that seemed like it's somewhere where they could actually have some impact. And Keystone XL was like a big activist push. And, And the most ambitious climate proposal in 2016, I think, was Bernie Sanders' one, which aimed to cut 80% emissions by 2050 through use of a carbon tax, which now sounds not all that big compared to even Biden's proposal. So we kind of had like these two uh, goals. Like we wanted to make the level of climate proposals much bigger. We wanted to introduce this idea of industrial policy and, in, and actively investing in industry and investing in the sectors of industry that we think would be necessary to do it. Like the Green New Deal, if you actually read it, is a list of basically industrial projects that we need to do. And the whole thing came out of Justice Democrats' brand new Congress organization that we we're trying to put together. The whole, we were trying to recruit 400 people, take over Congress, do, the, uh, do it that way. It didn't entirely work out as planned. But part of what we're trying to get into the mindset there was the idea of investing in industry as a way to solve our problems directly. And we thought the clean energy industry is an obvious one to tackle to just get people to even wrap their heads around what we're talking about because we had so much trouble getting people to even understand this idea. (laughs) And so we're like, all right, let's just pick a problem and solve it. How about that? So let's do Green New Deal. Let's do clean energy. And when Alexandria won her primary in, in 2018, it just created this massive shockwave, like way bigger than anything any of us were expecting. And she and we basically made the decision to just capitalize on that immediately. That day, she hadn't slept in probably two weeks, but she decided to do like a week of media hits to try to get that spotlight and turn it on to some actually important stuff. So that was the first step is keep that media attention, keep that spotlight. You know, it's 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 funny thinking back to when Eric Cantor lost and for the half of the China Talk audience who does not live in the U.S. and for whom this may be a little too in the weeds for them, but we're going to go for it. So Eric Cantor, who was the number three Republican in the House in I think it was 2014 or the primaries in 2013, also lost to a weird insurgent. The, the point is like. Just knocking off a figure is not necessarily enough to completely change the conversation. He's House Majority Leader, which is number two Republican, because Speaker is number one. But that was honestly what we were hoping for, because the way we thought of it was when Dave Bratt beat the number two Republican, it caused about a week of press. So if AOC beats the number three Democrat, we hope we can get to that level. We get four days. (laughs) Yeah, maybe four days of press, maybe three days. But yeah, it was this active decision to just go out there, which was a very risky move. If you talk to any Democratic consultant, they'll tell you, don't throw your candidate on a national press unprepared. But of course, she knocked out of the park. She was just incredible. She was so different from every politician any of these journalists had ever interviewed that they just kept wanting to have her on. And every time she would go on, she would say something new newsworthy. So then that's another day of news. And then she would say something else newsworthy. So it's another day day of news. So we just rode that wave. Lucky a little bit because it's 2018. It was a midterm. Not much else was going on. There wasn't a a whole lot of other stuff to take away the oxygen. But she had managed to establish herself as essentially probably the second or third most well-known House member in Congress before even getting sworn in. 
and she was willing to do things different and, and take big risks. So the major risk that she took was on the first day of her orientation. So basically before you go into Congress, you have a week long orientation in November. It's very much like going to college. It's really weird. And like, it's all clicky and the Republicans have their own bus and Democrats have their bus and the moderate Dems all hang out together at lunch. Together. It's, it's uh, very strange, <laughs> but we were going to go into orientation. We hadn't met anybody. I think she had talked to Pelosi once on the phone at this point, but we were total outsiders, had no idea what we were going into. And about a week before that, Zach calls me and he's like, Hey, Shoika, you got to take this call. I've got, I'm talking to these, uh, these people from Sunrise Movement and they're planning to do a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office to ask her to do more on climate change. And I had heard of Sunrise Movement at that point, but I had never And actually, never it was, I was on the phone with this guy from Sunrise, Evan Weber, and he was like, do you really have some connection to AOC or, and he was basically like, or are you just some old guy that told me a bunch of weird stuff <laughs> last month when we talked about climate stuff. And so I literally dialed Troycott and patched him in and was like, okay, you two, <laughs> well, these guys have something planned. Here's Troycott. So he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It was the right call at the right moment. And up until that point, through brand new Congress and Justice Democrats and Zach had done this fellowship at Harvard where he tried to work on stuff. We basically had fleshed out a lot of what would eventually become the Green New Deal, but it was probably like hundreds of pages of stuff all over the place. And Sunrise, the original thing that they're going to demand is just they want to do a green jobs demand on Pelosi. If you actually look at photos from the, the sit-in, they, all their signs still say green jobs for all because a Green New Deal didn't exist when they made those signs. And so what we did was like, we worked together with them to try to figure out a more concrete thing. And so we still weren't calling it the Green New Deal. We didn't know what to call it, but we asked for a committee that would try to come up with a plan to directly address these specific things to address climate change. And, and that includes some of these industries and pieces of infrastructure you actually need to invest in directly. And so that kind of came together over the next week. We did call it the Green New Deal. It was that resolution that we put out, the first one. We, we kind of decided on the name like... the night before I think <laughs> but but of course like Sunrise was hoping AOC would give him like a tweet and I brought this up to Alexandria and I was like look I think what these guys are doing could be a big deal sitting in the Democrat leader's office that's not something advocates do often when the Democrats win a majority and um, maybe you could support them and I joked maybe you could even join them but and, and she was like yeah, I'll join him, and which was a total surprise. <laughs> but, but that was what's so great about her. And, and the context was that Pelosi's leadership was a big news story. Is she going to be leader again, or is she going to get challenged? And the other big right. story was the wildfires in California. And you the know. IPCC report had just come out that same week. That's right, saying 10 years. Yeah, so basically she agreed to do this totally wild thing that no politician would do. And she already has this reputation of being like, uh, you don't know what to expect politician. And so the news was, of course, going to cover it because she had just done such a great job up until that point. And, and so we managed to get that resolution together in a week. It was a precursor to the actual Green New Deal resolution, which we put out in March. But we put something together for that week. And then AOC did the sit-in with Sunrise Movement. And that was the initial bit of national coverage that was on the very first day of her orientation, the very first time she gets to meet all her new classmates in the college. And that did take an amazing amount of courage. And I, I just remember being totally awestruck that she could go through with it. Because imagine like you show up to a new job and you go in and confront the boss, like not even the day you start, but the day before you start. 
publicly confront the boss. I mean, that's crazy. So it was really incredible. But it's also, this story for me is really also a testament to why political leadership by individuals who are willing to take risks is so necessary in changing the world. Because Sunrise, which is a totally amazing organization, they were not able to propose anything like the Green New Deal because the way they said it at the time like we're a democratic organization. A lot of people in our organization don't get this idea of World War II style mobilization and how do you build new industries? This is a lot to take in. And all yeah. those questions were settled when AOC showed leadership because the next day, everybody in the Sunrise organization was super excited about the Green New Deal. And we actually worked with them. A few people from New Consensus went, which is the think tank that Troycott and I work with. They, they went and uh, did some presentations for all of the young activists from Sunrise who were packing this church, learning, getting trained how to get arrested in the Capitol, that kind of thing. But it was the same with all of the green groups. If you had gone to any of those normal environmental green groups like Greenpeace and whatever, NRDC, if you had asked them the day before that sit-in, would you support something like this? They'd be like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You know, what, what this, is, this is nuts. It doesn't make any sense. But the day after, they were all signing on. They were all endorsing. And we had some really interesting experiences in the weeks and months that followed where people from Sunrise or people from New Consensus, we'd wind up in these coalition meeting rooms with all these standing coalitions of green groups and progressive organizations around climate. And they were so pissed. They had all been forced by this moment that AOC created to endorse the Green New Deal and to look excited about it. But we had messed up their plans. We had moved their cheese in such a colossal way. And they were not happy about it. But they were like, all right, you did this. So what do we do next? I, did, and, I uh, spent the next yeah. few months mostly getting yelled at by yeah. everybody. But, <laughs> but then uh, these amazing things happen. Like yeah. Ed Markey, Senator Ed Markey says, hey, I want to co-sponsor the real resolution. Let's go. And I remember telling Shoykat, no, he's lying. This is a trick. This is some complicated. <laughs> There's no way this could be possible. They're going to water it down so much. And yet he really didn't. Until it gets attention, most people don't. We have Joe Courtney on there, who's very much does not consider, consider himself a lefty. But people signed on because there's nothing in there that's actually fundamentally bad, right? <laughs> like it's only after after something becomes popular and then Fox News gets its way with it that things become polarized or whatever, and then it starts to become this left right divide. But I think the goal was very much just to move the terms of debate and by directly ta targeting the presidential candidates. That was the goal in the March resolution, which we later released as like a proper House bill. And so that was that's just what we were focused on. We weren't trying to get coalitions together or any of that. We just wanted to move what the next president was going to do and talk about because uh, that's real political power. Yeah, I want to tie this section and the evolution of the Green New Deal back to the intellectual history you guys were talking about at the beginning. You've described a lot about what wasn't there in terms of support for, for the idea you're pushing, for the, the kind of coalitions you'd need to organize. What was there? What were the threads that you surveyed the Democratic Party landscape and you said, okay, here are threads that we can pull on in order to actually get our ideas? I, I don't think power. we did that, actually. I remember feeling really bad on the day that the thing was happening because... I felt like we were probably helping AOC to ruin her career because I, I felt like 
there was going to be this enormous backlash from all the groups and they were just going to be like, what is she doing? But the only reason why like, I felt okay about helping to nudge things in this direction was because I realized I had been somebody in the mix that was really holding us back so much. We had written up a bunch of the Green New Deal ideas all these big industrial plans. And by the way, something about the Green New Deal is it's not just about green energy, right? It's a full industrial revolution plan for touching on every industry and every aspect of our infrastructure and manufacturing industries and every sector, everything, right? And and I remember I had this big giant paper that I had finished while doing this fellowship at Harvard after the Bernie campaign. And I remember this moment way early on when Troikot was like, okay, let's put it up on our website, the Justice Democrats website. And I was like, no, it's this is so out of step with what anybody is willing to accept that it will get ridiculed and mocked. And I was really worried that our candidates were going to get excited about it and start talking about it on the campaign trail. And I was like, they're just going to get laughed at. And that was a horrible mistake. But no, I actually think you're right. Because in that moment, because either it would have been just ignored, which I think is the most likely situation. And it would have that that's that. But but there is this tendency whenever people put out new ideas for existing political actors to try to rip it to shreds, unless the new idea is being put out by someone with actual power, because then there's this chance it might turn real. And and I saw that, like, even after Green Needle came out, there were people at that point privately trying to, like, j- being mad, as Zach said, right? Because it was putting a wrench in the works of the general way, the, the sausage mill, everything, that the way that things have been going, all the current assumptions, the current beliefs about what we can't do. What I will say, though, Vishnu, is, like, there were, not within political groups, but there was there were people outside of political groups who at least were talking about a lot of parts of these ideas and some of these ideas who had more kind of academic credentials than we did, which was, I think, pretty crucial to helping AOC get the confidence to talk about this stuff the way she did. And a new consensus early, Zach and Demond early on put a briefing together with people like Mariana Mazzucato and folks like her who had been starting to write about these ideas and they're being considered new around the same time. And that I think definitely helped Alexandria both figure out her footing on talking about it and also get the, the confidence. Because most people going into political work, they do need confidence and go out on a limb and, and say something. It, it just takes so much courage to basically confront your boss with a new idea that other people aren't talking about and say yeah. this is what you should be doing, right? Yeah, so that that's true. It wasn't strands within the Democratic Party or the progressive world that were getting closer to industrial policy and talking about investing in industry. But there were these other places that were bringing credibility. There were a lot of mainstream, pretty traditional, conser- even conservative and right-wing economists who were coming around to investment. And I remember one of the moments when I realized this, it was reading Martin Wolf's the big FT economist guru guy. I was reading his book, The Shifts and the Shocks, back in... 2016 or 2017. And, you know, he's like, yeah, the whole thing's broken. Business isn't investing. They don't want to take risks. We need to plow trillions of dollars of, and how did he say it? Non-debt monetary expansion. In other words, we need to print money and just pour it into state-led investment into industry. And I was like, 
what's going on here? And these right-wingers who actually had intellectual and moral integrity, they were looking at what happened in the wake of the 2008 collapse and the bad recovery or the non-recovery, and their conversion was mainly driven by China eating our lunch, as uh, Biden said recently. And, you know, they're just like, we need to do something. And so the people with real integrity actually started talking about this radical stuff. And, and I remember at some of those coalition tables, I was just talking to these progressives and being like, you guys have to realize that there, there are like many right-wing economists, there's a few Republican senators and a bunch of CEOs talking at Davos right now that are so far to the left of you guys when it comes to this economic policy stuff. And once we were coming in contact with major leaders at really big banks and stuff who were like, we need more state banks to lead on investment. So the world was changing, but the Democratic Party was not. Yeah. And I think, I, I think as Zach said, like, yeah, I think that was a reaction to aftermath of the 08 recession and, and kind of the rise of China. Like that, I think, is there was just this fundamental fact in the world that we were, were like starting to fall behind. And also because right wingers tend to follow the military more and the military is one of the places where we still do industrial policy and actually think about supply chains and all of that. It's funny because I don't think people even think of it as like this new way of thinking. You're, everyone's in their bubbles. But yeah, I wish we had met Rob back in those days, actually, Rob Atkinson. <laughs> did yeah. not know about him until I saw him. <laughs> yeah. him show. I really enjoyed his uh, interview. And then in the end, when he started dunking on the left, I was like, no, we're not like them. But I, I think he's very, he was very right in the way he characterized much of the left and progressive movement when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. And I think that was one of the really sad outcomes of the Green New Deal was that was the way it came to be misunderstood. And this was partly because of the right wing attacks, like the Fox News attacks, that it was all about banning hamburgers and airplanes. But it was also it's got the progressive world watered it down in their rhetoric, not actually in the legislation. Like the AOC Ed Markey resolution was amazing, but nobody read it. And they just assumed it was a bunch of regulations. Like ask your typical Sunrise chapter member anywhere in the country, and they'll tell you probably it's about banning cheeseburgers and airplanes. So, uh, yeah. yeah, but I mean, there's, there's, there's also like a dynamic of the right wing media, which gives this wings in a sense, right? Because th there's a way in which the, the coverage, regardless of how sort of silly it is, begets more coverage. Still, it wasn't like the progressives were fighting for, we got to invest in the economy. They tended to gravitate towards other parts of it that was like like the social programs. Yeah, and and you know. I, I think I, I blame progressives less on this than Zach. Like, I, I do think that the right wing media coverage of it had a lot to do with it. And I might be biased just because I was in the thick of it while all that right wing media coverage was happening. But it was like 100 to 1 outgunned by right wing coverage versus like, it's not even just right wing coverage versus correct coverage. It was right wing coverage, which, which was informing the mainstream media coverage because Fox News would publish Green New Deal bans cow farts. And then CNN says, does the Green New Deal ban cow farts? Find out more next week. And then you've got like Democracy Now or somebody trying to put on actual people who worked on this stuff uh, and give them a platform. So it's, it's so hard to fight that battle. And, and so I don't blame progressives for drawing the conclusions they hear from most of the media, which is saying the Green New Deal is all regulations. And there are many environmentalists who like that. They were like, yes, great. We're going to get rid of all plastic straws and 
Everyone right. will recycle. I just want to push one more time, but not to blame progressives, but just to say that this is really the crux of what we're talking about in this show is industrial policy and investing into industry is a really hard thing for Americans to get their heads around for precisely the reason we were talking about before, which is that we grew up with that just not even being a thing. Maybe in the 70s, there were arguments against, it was like the Milton Friedman times were arguing against state-led investment in the industry. But there was no more argument about that after the 80s, you know? At this point, how much of both the economic history you guys described at the beginning and this description of the evolution of the Green New Deal, how much of the final kind of gravity, right, the political gravity on the issue is a function of the idea and how much of it is a function of the messaging that you guys feel like you're doing? Yeah, it's a good question. I promise this is related to answering your question, which is that I, I think it's not like state-led investment in industry went away after 1980, but I think the political terms of debate made it so that every agency working on any sort of state-led in investment went underground. That wasn't something we, we publicly fought for anymore. That was things that were happening on the side and anytime, but the right wing was fighting against it every time. Solyndra is a great example. Anytime there was a mistake or a boondoggle or some problem, the right wing would define the terms of the debate. And so that is the problem is that it's hard for me to say that the ideas in the Green New Deal that are thought of in either way by the vast majority of public, just because I don't think most of the public even thought of the Green New Deal as a state-led investment industry program to solve climate change. I think the right wing called the socialist, communist, eco-environmental program, they'll take away all of the good stuff. And I think progressives thought of it as versions of the keep it in the ground movement. And, and that'll also provide jobs, right? There's some like a jobs guarantee and stuff like that. But so it's entirely the message, right? And it's entirely, again, became defined by the right wing version of the message. And the thing that's, re that's remarkable to me is despite that, the Green New Deal ended up with pretty good support, especially if you actually pull the ideas in it. If you pull stuff like state-led investment in industry, should we be building more solar panel factories, whatever, that stuff actually is pretty popular. And even the name Green New Deal has somehow managed to stay popular, like just because I think despite that full frontal attack, the right didn't manage to own the entire message because I think it had nothing to do with the media. I think that was just because people like Joe Biden adopted it. His initial climate change proposal said the Green New Deal is a great framework. And so that, so it just kind of got attached to these different political figures. All that to say is, I think the message is defined by the right <laughs> kind of made it a polarizing thing. And all of politics is trying to get the winning message and get your message to be heard and have your message be the one that people listen to and that you're trying to convince people on. And, and all too often... In political circles, people go the other route. And what I mean by that is there's a common thought in Congress and probably any place like DARPA, wherever they're doing actual work, to have their programs have as little public exposure as possible. You never want the public to know what you're doing because the fear is as soon as they find out, it'll get, it'll get politicized, it'll get polarized, and then, then it's a shit show. But the downside of that is I think you just accept a slow death of all these things and you gradually make what you're fighting for smaller and smaller. Related but pivoting to the substance of the Green New Deal, I'm interested in how you both think about making trade-offs between competing priorities, right? This is a gigantic society-wide project and it seems like the Biden administration has a couple of gigantic society-wide projects. They've got COVID in the short term. They've got geopolitical competition with China in the medium term. They have climate change in the relatively longer term. 
and so you know you've got these relatively finite resources you've got money bureaucratic attention things like that how do you think about balancing something like climate change this long-term definitely existential threat against a shorter term non-existential threat something like foreign policy priorities and competition with china I think this is maybe a good place to bring it back to China, actually, because I, I think that we have this zero-sum thinking in America. We've had it for a while, and this is a fallacy that's imposed on our brains by economists. To make new things happen, like to build new industries, new higher-value industries that will pay people more, create more value, we tend to think about it as, oh, we have to get money from somewhere. So that means we'll have to raise some people's taxes or stop spending money on this other thing. But that's really not how it works in any economy. We have people and we have resources and we have capital. We have machines and knowledge and all kinds of stuff. And, and to a huge degree, our people and resources and capital are not being used productively and not being used for anything useful. So it's not just unemployed people. Like we have so much power that is just spinning in place or not being used for anything good. And we could point that in the direction of building new industries, new higher value industries, uh, upgrading, improving our industries. And I was really excited to come on the podcast, which I've been a fan of for a while because I studied in China back in 1987 when I was just 17 years old. And and it really made a huge impact on me. And one of the things that, that struck me was just what incredible, like how China with had started with nothing, right? China was just a big basket case agricultural mess at, at, around the time of the revolution. And in just a few decades had built this incredible society, this really advanced, comfortable, almost middle class in a way society by the time I got there. And I was just really confused as to how it could have happened. And I, I grew up in Connecticut, which was the richest state in the country at the time, but just a couple miles down the road from me was one of the very poorest cities in the country. And the stores were all boarded up. And the, this was before gentrification and cities developed a day life and a night life. And it was, it was, just, a, it was just a mess. And, and I was like, you never saw anything like that anywhere in China. Everything was booming. Everything, every resource was being utilized. Everybody was thinking, how do we build? And, and I was just like, how did this happen? And it wasn't until years later that I realized it didn't have anything to do with any kind of Chinese system. It didn't have anything to do with communism, that was for sure. But over a couple hundred years, one country after another got itself together and took what it had and made something more by mobilizing people and resources and capital and building new industries, always higher and higher value industries. So I was like, why can't we do that? So I think that zero sum thinking of to do this, we have to take away from this is the main thing right now that's preventing us from moving forward. And it's a fallacy. Yeah, I remember in, in, I think it was the 2012 debate, like at some point Romney said, like, I'm going to grow the economy at like two and a half percent. And everyone laughed at him. <laughs> and and then like it actually ended up growing at two and a half percent. But th there's something about living and being exposed to a country yeah. 
which is growing at six, seven percent at six, seven, eight, nine percent or 15 or 20, which I think it might have been back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's just like your 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 possibility space expands right. and accepting the low growth developed world future, which it felt like for the 2010s. We don't need to debate to what extent was it the people versus the party in creating, you know, a new China. But just seeing that it's possible, it makes your vision more ambitious for what, you know, what your society can do, I think. Yeah. One thing I was just going to say to to Vishnu's question, because I think there's sort of two things you you brought up. One is the economic trade-offs, right, of picking to do one thing versus another. I think that's what Zach's addressing. And the second thing you you talk about is like the political trade-off. If we focus on this, then it doesn't take away from foreign policy. And and I think on, on industrial policy, the U.S. really has no... I wouldn't say no, but like very little institutional support for anything. Like we don't even have the capacity to make that kind of judgment. Like we don't even have the capacity of anybody thinking about which industry should we be investing in, which sectors do we want to lead in, how do we build the workforce to do those industries. It's all done kind of bill by bill, randomly, one-offs. Maybe we'll do some semiconductor money today. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll make some masks, which we didn't end up doing anyway. And so I think at this stage, we really are a developing country and like we should probably invest in creating some of those institutions you know and, and that's some of the work that we end up doing at new consensus is trying to uh, talk about how can we use the fed as a developing bank or should we make a state-owned bank like a national investment bank looking at credit systems around the world like you know china of course has their state-owned banks there that they use to do a lot of direct investment in industry to even get started some sort of credit system combined with some sort of planning, development, strategy, whatever you call it, organization, right? Some organization that's doing an actual economic strategy for the country. And and I'd say that's that's key to everything. That's also key to foreign policy objectives, right? There's this other piece of the way I think about how to line things up politically. The more wins you get early actually gets you more political capital to do more things later, which is different from I'd say probably the Obama era mindset, which is you have a set amount of political capital that you must spend on one push. And for him famously, it was healthcare. And I think that's not the right approach. I think the right approach is go fast, go hard, message, take credit. I'm very excited about Biden's $1.9 trillion bill, but I'm very worried that they're not taking nearly enough credit. They're not actually making sure people know what they're doing. And then use that, build political capital amongst people, not DC amongst people to go bigger, go faster and do more. So this is one of the themes of your podcast is the sort of reluctance for democratic politicians to dance in the end zone, I guess. I'm not sure what the exact uh, metaphor is, but just this idea that we're going to govern and govern quietly and efficiently. And that is enough. So you talked about it in the domestic context right there. I'm curious if there's a parallel in the foreign policy space where in speaking to other countries, you also need to have a vision which may might need to be a little more exciting or compelling to the rest of the world than what it seems like the Biden administration is focusing on, which is basically, it's not really America first, but we're going to do everything with the American middle class in mind, which is certainly something that presumably will resonate with some people in the US, but is not necessarily what I would pick first on the list trying to kill our relationship with our allies and restore the the U.S.'s place in the world. I think a great American foreign policy should just be 
hey, if anybody, we'll never do this though, by the way, and we've never done it, but we're still the biggest industrial economy in the world. We've got industry. We would love to help you build your economy if you would like to do business with us and and just go in heavy with investment and real development, not aid. I'm not saying we should cut off aid. I'm not against aid, but let's offer real investment to other countries. That'll be good for our business and it'll be good for their economies. But that's just not how the American foreign policy establishment thinks because we've been working for decades. We don't, I'm not saying we do this intentionally now, but we used to work intentionally to prevent countries from developing their economies in most cases. And I think a lot of it comes from this sort of fear. It happens to everybody. Like as soon as you feel like you're starting to fall behind, you start governing and doing things and acting out of a place of fear where you want to stop the other side. And I saw a little bit about your labs versus fabs thing. And a lot of the stuff you pointed out is exactly that, where like the focus is on short-term fear-based trying to hold back the rest of the world rather than investing in ourselves and investing in everybody else and seeing how that can actually collectively improve everybody's wealth and everybody's happiness, everybody's quality of life and way of living. And yeah, and I think that could that would be a better thing to talk to our allies about. Coming back to, to, to our FDR theme here, Seeds of Peace. I guess that was Truman. But after World War II, the vision was that the U.S. would trade the magnificence of nuclear power in order for a commitment from countries around the world to not develop their own nuclear capabilities. And like not much ended up coming of that. But it's an interesting model to think of. Well, it helped uh, for a little while. But, but yeah, but I think, but I think more exciting than that was like the Marshall Plan, the investments we made in Europe. There was a moment of understanding that, okay, we're really like our prosperity depends on getting Europe back up on its feet. And then out of necessity, okay, let's help Japan get back on its feet. Let's definitely allow South Korea and Taiwan to develop so that we don't get communist movements taking over there. But unfortunately, that's where it stopped. And just imagine if instead of spending 30 years toppling every nationalist, Western-looking, usually pro-American government that popped up that wanted to develop their economies, uh, if we had actually just invested massively into Africa, into Latin America, into the rest of Asia, the same way that we did in Japan and, and Europe. It would have been amazing. We'd be living in a whole new world. And, and of course, part of the thinking in the Marshall Plan was, as Zach said, it's lined up with our economic interest to build up Europe. But it was also this diagnosis of what led to World War II, because the period between World War I and World War II was we took the opposite approach to Germany, where we were very punitive and we hurt them with these tariffs. And there was this realization that, oh, actually hurting a country to a point where it's at a breaking point might not be so good. It might get us into a World War type situation again. So let's see if we can do it a different way this time. But we lost that lesson somewhere along the way. There was this recent piece by Hal Brands talking about the, the tensions inherent in some of this stuff. And like basically in, in the 20th century, America would cut a lot of sweetheart trade deals with allied countries and giving giving their industries the benefit of the doubt and not necessarily looking particularly askance at um, you know Japanese industrial policy or what have you until it was a fully developed country when you hit the mid 80s. And there, there will be tension um, doing the sort of Jake Sullivan like foreign policy for the middle class stuff and trying to follow a path that you guys are, are, are advocating of really being much more open to more interaction and intertwining. But I would argue, though, that's 
only true if we only go halfway. Now, of course, we are only going to go halfway. We'll probably only go a tenth of the way. <laughs> but it's too bad because if we went all of the way and actually built new industries, then the same thing that's good for the middle class in America is going to be good for everybody all over the world because we will be selling stuff that the rest of the world needs to build their economies. And this is exactly what drove American prosperity after World War II. Remember, when we built this, like, the biggest economy ever during World War II, which was oriented towards war, of course, what were we building? We were building ships, we were building vehicles, airplanes, steel, aluminum, radios, all kinds of stuff. We realized at the time that could be the basis for the most amazing consumer economy ever, but there needed to be customers. And so that's one of the reasons why we helped the, some parts of the rest of the world get on their feet. And of course, we developed our domestic market took off. So there, there didn't turn out to be a problem of overproduction after World War II. We had the most incredible prosperity anybody ever saw. We could do that again, but only if we build the industries to fuel that. And if we don't, then it's just going to be that zero-sum thinking, and, and we are going to just do tit-for-tat little tariffs and try to protect what little we have. Let me do the kind of defense of foreign policy for the middle class, just because it's principally a Carnegie product, and I feel some institutional loyalty to do that. So let's say we do only go a tenth of the way. And so in the world in which we really do make all of the investments you guys are describing in domestic manufacturing, and we, we do this complete reorienting of the industrial balance in the United States, then a foreign policy for the middle class that prioritizes middle class prosperity, however you choose to define the middle class ultimately, is consistent with what you're describing. But in the world where we don't necessarily do that, why is it unreasonable to ground a foreign policy in the interests of the vast majority of your electorate if you're a democratic society? That is what you should do. If you're running the United States, then that's absolutely what you should do. Uh, it's too bad that they don't go all the way and then they wouldn't have to make that trade-off. If we end up ha you know, having limited resources, then yes, we should fight for our share of the pie. But I guess we wish the way we were thinking about our domestic manufacturing wasn't just making cars for every American, but building up the rest of the world so we're making cars for the entire world because the whole world can afford cars, electric cars, right? Then, which, of course, is just a, a huge order of magnitude jump in the scale of things that everybody is consuming and things that everyone's producing. But, but yes, if we're, only, if we're not going to do that, then it's the correct foreign policy for America to fight for American interests. That's decline management, right? What what you're talking about is decline management. And in the la in your last episode, you mentioned furniture, right? And I actually went and met with uh, David Artur, the MIT economist. He did the China study. And it, it, this one case study that they covered was how Chinese competition just completely wiped out the furniture industry, which was a big Southern industry, employed tons of people in the South. And actually, our podcast mate, Corbin Trent, used to actually run a furniture factory in Tennessee, in East Tennessee, and which was put out of business. One of his radicalizing uh, moments. Yeah. But imagine we had followed this policy under Obama. And what David Arthur told me was that, whose name I guess I'm mispronouncing now, but he told me that, that there were actually these WTO rules that the Obama administration could have used that if, if you're just getting too many imports in, in an industry and it's just too much competition too fast, you can just put the brakes on. You can just put tariffs up and it's not against w, WTO rules. You can just say, whoa, slow down, let us adjust. And he was just baffled that the 
Obama administration didn't do that with furniture and with some of these other industries. So what you're talking about is a policy where the Obama administration would have protected furniture. What would that have looked like? It would have been 10 more years of middle class wages for a couple million people. But then they eventually would have lost those jobs anyways. Were we going to invest in replacement industries? Were we going to move those people up the ladder? No, we weren't going to do that. And so I'm not saying it's bad. No, of course, it would be better to keep those people employed for 10 more years, but that's just decline management. And if we keep doing that, I agree with your last host that we got 10 more years and then we're just done. We're just going to be a second rate economy, a second rate power. And I'm scared of what the American people are going to do when they wake up and realize for real, that we've been left behind by the rest of the world. And that's when you get something worse than Trump. And so I think this is really important to get right. Are the primary barriers then to what you're describing political? It seems there's a vision. If we go all the way, it actually seems like a pretty coherent vision. And the reason that I'm asking questions about trade-offs and the reason that you're arguing against these entrenched economic models in at least heuristics is that we have a political system that's oriented around that. Yeah, it's it's wild the gifts that we currently have, right, that we're failing to use. We have this massive industrial base still. We have so much labor. We're still the third or fourth largest country in the world. We have the best like research institutions and some of the best research funding of any country in the history of the world. We've got amazing universities. We have with and all we have the smartest unique... people from the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's still yeah. still some for now attract the smartest. Yeah, people for a few more really years. Is cheating. Yeah, it is for now. Like we have the cheat codes. It's like ridiculous <laughs> how much we like we were given the cheat code to win the game, and we're just like I don't know. I don't think we. It, it feels scary to use this one feels really scary to use it. And, and of course, we also have this unique financial position in the world where people currently want the U.S. dollar. They're not going to want the U.S. dollar forever. We can't just forever trade our money for stuff from the rest of the world. But for now, we're able to do that a little bit. And, and so, yeah, politically, there's just so much fear of getting things wrong, doing things and messing it up. And usually because it starts with half measures, so you do a little bit, you don't see much of the benefit of it, but you definitely get the downside. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about investing in, some of it would have a lot of short-term political results in the sense of it would create lots of jobs, create political capital. But in terms of investing in totally new industries, these are long-term projects, right? These are, the, and I think that's a lot of the way we, we tend to think of industrial policy is, is about things on the spectrum of short-term to long-term returns, right? And I think oftentimes people think of it as like R&D versus everything else. And I think that's the wrong divide. R&D is one end of the long-term spectrum, the farthest end of the long-term spectrum. But there are many things between R&D and Twitter that takes long-term patient capital to provide and requires credit that from our government, which can provide that credit because we, we can create money to build up industry. And so, yeah, politically, there is a culture issue. There's also just a, not ideological, but just like worldview issue, right? Like most people in government are not even thinking about this. 
it just hit me that it's political, but also ideological. And I, th I think a huge part of the reason for the political problem is the ideological problem. And our leaders who maybe would be, they would be happy with all this stuff. If we could actually take them away and walk them through the economic history of all the rich countries in the world, they might come back and really go for it. But the problem is they just don't have that context. And when you look at the countries that developed and built a bunch of industries very quickly in national development projects, the leaders had a really practical, concrete understanding of this. In the same way that I saw this stuff going up in China in a way that I shouldn't have been possible, based on my understanding that opened up my imagination. The leaders in China, had they had seen the incredibly rapid development in the Soviet Union, but also in Western Europe and in America back then. And, and another story is South Korea, maybe the most incredible rapid you know, industrialization story, and which happened under Park Chung-hee. And Park Chung-hee, as a soldier... You got to pitch your favorite book when you talk about South Korea. Ha Jun Chang, Bad Samaritans. Got to read Bad Samaritans, yes. And But Park, Park Chung-hee was a soldier in the Japanese army in Manchuria because Korea was uh, colonized by Japan. He worked in this industrialization project that was being run by this division of the Japanese army. And it, it was basically this experiment that Imperial Japan was doing. And it was very successful in terms of building up all these industries very quickly. So he had a, like his own very practical understanding. He knew what he had to do. And if you go through every single country that developed rapidly, it was developed by people who had been somewhere else where they saw it happen. And actually, I have a question for your listeners. When I was in China, the leaders and the young people who were about to be leaders, they were all reading this textbook. And I have Googled like crazy to find what this textbook was. But it was a Chinese uh, textbook, and it was this very practical history of how, I think it was uh, how Britain and then... America and France and Germany, how they developed. And it was all about the state-led investment in our country's histories. And it was just like, here's what you got to do. Here's how rich countries become rich. And so I would love to be able to find that book. Julian Gewirth, former China Talk guest, now chilling on the NSC, wrote a paper about Alvin Toffler and Future Shock and the third wave. And that had a real moment in China in the 1980s of just like futurism and a new industrial revolution on the horizon. That might not be exactly the textbook you're talking about, but definitely that was a strain, which had some real currency in that time. Yeah. And, and one other piece I just want to throw in there for the political problem and the ideological problem is, of course, because America has developed and now we have very wealthy incumbents. We have incumbent industries and incumbent, like just rich people. And if you think about who are our politicians getting their advice from, what is the normal? Like Zach sort of describing this environment in China where the normal was to think about development through this process, right? It would be like if The Economist was every day just writing about all the ways state-led investment actually made countries richer. But the normal in D.C. is what you hear from the lobbyists for various corporations, because they're usually the ones that you go to. And it's not out of like ill intent, it's just because our politicians think they're the experts. If I want the expert on X industry, I'll talk to a lobbyist from this company. And of course, for incumbents, they're rarely going to argue for more change. They're doing pretty well, right? They're going to argue for keeping whatever's keeping and But they will argue for government money in acute crises to keep them afloat, but they're not going to argue for any of the other things to actually develop the economy. 
I guess I'm a little worried of this conversation because so often when we're emphasizing state-led investment and all this stuff, the way a lot of people in America hear us is they hear us saying, we only want state-led investment and all investment must come from the state. And that's not what we're saying. And it's funny because the state-led investment has been so politicized in America over the decades, like we talked about, that if you endorse a state-led investment a little bit, you might as well be a full-blown Stalinist in a lot of people's minds. So we're really not saying that. And, and it should be easy to understand for most people these days because we're in the same boat with Marco Rubio and... Josh Hawley, as you've covered before, these guys are writing big papers about how private capital in America is basically on strike and is not investing in innovation or in patient long investments that we need to make just to stay above water. And they're talking about public investment. They're, they're reaching out, trying to figure out what are some kinds of institutions they could endorse as conservatives that would lead investment and that would push investment. They're really struggling with it because they're conservatives, but they're going to get there and they're probably going to get there before Democrats. So anyways, I just wanted to make that caveat so that we didn't get misunderstood as some yeah. kind of Stalinist or and something. Shoykat, you were bringing up the Chinese state-owned banks and the provincial governments investing in lots of things. And the central point, I don't think we got to this in the Matt Klein interview where we talked about trade wars or class wars last mm. week, but they make the point in the book that like there are economies which are over-invested and which are under-invested. And the return on capital that you now get in China for putting money into projects is way lower because all the good projects have already had way too much money thrown <laughs> uh, right. into them because there are really aggressive political incentives for the past 15, 20 years, really starting in 2008, to overbuild as a way to juice GDP, which is tied into promotion cycles and what have you. Whereas in the US, the opportunity set if you're thinking about where you can put your money as a government and where you can do things which are going to have like really great uh, second order effects on the city where you're fixing the roads or the industry where you're going to put an extra few billion dollars of R&D money or what have you is just much higher because we haven't been doing yeah, that for so right. long. And the downside, which you see in the Chinese context of all this bad debt and having to pay a ridiculous amount of interest and, and what have you really doesn't apply right now in the U.S. because we've been on such a different path um, when it comes to spending money for the past 20 years. But I'd actually argue that those problems in China are mainly caused by the neoliberal kind of shift that happened in China. Because t for a few decades, tons of leaders in China were really pushing towards a more free market approach. And so they were really pushing away from state-led investment. And so I think what you actually find in China is where there's some cases where there's a really strategic push, like in chips, like you've covered, that they're trying to develop that super high-end chip industry. They're making massive investments in artificial intelligence. So there are areas, but they could be investing massively into clean green steel, right? They could be investing into green aluminum. There's a million other things that they could be investing in and really jumping ahead of the world. And they're not doing that to anywhere near the extent that they could be. In 2008, they did a basic, very scattershot, unstrategic stimulus program just like we did. Theirs was way bigger as a percent of the GDP. I love Adam Tooze has written about this and covered it in his book, Crashed, and how they basically saved the world economy with this. But it was very unstrategic and decentralized. Actually, the Chinese system is really not that centralized. And you find that all over the world. The same story in Germany. A lot of these countries are coasting on the institutions they have, like Schoikot was talking about. China has its state banks, but Germany has four different 
mission-driven banking sector. They have a not-for-profit banking sector at the local level that invests in their small and medium-sized industry. They have agricultural cooperative banks that keep agriculture going. They have state banks, and then they have the big commercial banks that are actually still somewhat long-term looking corporate banks for the big giant German corporations. And that's their system. Every country has its own system for organizing patient capital. But what you found is all around the world, those systems were really having the plugs pulled out of them. It's just that 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 process started later in most countries than it started in the U.S. And it was also done with less zeal. And like Schweikart was saying, we never had many institutions to drive that kind of state-led investment. We're very much behind. But I think there's no limit to what we could do if we threw ourselves into building the kinds of industries that we need to live sustainably and comfortably and really prosperously. And there's no limit for any society to do that. Of course, there is a limit. And that limit is the people, the resources, and the capital. But we're nowhere near engaging all of that to the maximum extent. Patrick Collison tweeted out some paper talking about the sort of breakdown in de- development outcomes when you see how many engineers versus lawyers you get out of young people. And Troycott, as an engineer who's, I mean, not really a lawyer now, but is, is sort of going down the, the policy path, I'm curious if you have any reflections on that or, you know, words to the youth on how to think about having an impact, talking about these sorts of issues. What would you tell to uh, to another 21-year-old who's probably pretty good at coding but also cares about these bigger issues? I, I, I always have trouble trying to give advice to anybody because I don't think anyone should take my advice on anything except industrial policy. But <laughs> Except how to spend trillions of dollars. <laughs> well, and you know, it's, it's because like there's, like I, I have this fundamental recognition of like I managed to end up in a lot of lucky situations to the right place at the right time, which were made possible by moments that were societally created. Like I ended up in Silicon Valley at the right time. I ended up getting the opportunity to work on politics at a time where people are really hungry and open for change. And if I have any advice for people, I think there's like this tendency right now to for everyone to become an activist and to go pursue things that way. And I, I don't actually think that's the thing to do. I think the thing to do is actually learn stuff, grow some skills, work on what you enjoy working on, and then be open to putting yourself into lucky situations to make some impact. And that could be through politics and broader societal stuff, but it could also be in your workplace. You could be the person that massively upgrades, I don't know, Tesla if you're an electrical engineer working there or or wherever, and use that as a way to actually know how to fix larger problems in society. Because I think people do need to learn things. And I personally don't think I maybe learned enough. I probably should go back to being an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we get these emails frequently from super smart students who want to come work on economic policy with us or join a campaign or something. And every now and then we talk to them when they seem really cool and smart. And I was on the phone for a couple hours not long ago with this Stanford AI student who was really brilliant. And she was like, I really want to go join a nonprofit and save the world and help people. And I was like, no, no, no. (laughs) I was saying the same thing as Schweigert. I was like, you got to go work for some 
startup or some established company and you got to like really learn how to manage teams and then you got to lead some project and really make a name for yourself because not everybody can do that and then come to DC and then run for Congress and, and actually have an impact because you'll actually know how to do stuff and you'll have credibility where you can say you did stuff. People want to be advocates, right? And so who are you going to advocate for? There's all these smart people with pretty privileged backgrounds who went to amazing universities and they want to go advocate for the poor and oppressed. And I'm like, no, they can advocate for themselves. They do not need you to go advocate for them. And in fact, it's a big problem when people from suburbs like me, I spent like 10 years working as a union organizer and I don't think I should have done that. I think that was meddling in other communities affairs that really did not need me. And uh, I learned a lot, but I don't think I actually contributed much to the world during those years. Take the privilege and the resources that you have and make an impact on the world to the degree that you actually can with what you have. Yeah. One thing I do want to kind of harp on a little bit, there is like a real like lack of skills that end up in political places. It ends up being the same. You're seeing this with the Biden team too. It's sort of the same people somehow just end up keeping on getting the same jobs and, and and yeah, it's talking a, about all of uh, their previous guests, so watch out. Oh, sorry, sorry. So, uh. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, 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 I'll make this point. I'll make this point. I, I, you know, I think it's I, there was a piece recently about how Biden is hiring all these social scientist type folks to do climate policy, and they had never worked in government before, but he has committed to a pretty radical shift in the way that the U.S. government is going to take on these issues. And you, you see that in, in personnel, right, where, where you have these sort of like oddball academics coming in. And I, I think what is what has been striking to me in seeing who's been getting the top jobs in all the policy positions, like the average past tenure in government is 10 plus years, it seems, for anyone senior. And even in, in the first year of the Obama administration, right, like Samantha Power is a wild card. There did seem to be a, a sort of sprinkle of folks out of left field to inject some new ideas. And I think there's a balance, right, because it's unclear whether we're coming off such a mess of foreign affairs that it you you can see the logic behind picking more conservative sure hands when it comes to this sort of thing. But I do think you lack a little bit of dynamism in not having some more divergent voices. The last time we did truly great things was that World War II buildup when we doubled the size of our economy. Even if you don't like building industries and fighting wars, it was the biggest thing we ever did. And that whole effort was driven by engineers from business, from manufacturing. And I mean, they're great people, but when I saw how Biden was picking all these physicians and researchers to run the COVID response, I was really wishing that he had also picked some people with some experience in pharmaceutical manufacturing, for example. I'm happy with the pace that the vaccinations are happening, but I think to actually pandemic-proof America, they would need to hire people other than doctors. It's a little bit like... In the 08 recession, famously, Obama was kind of surrounded by only Wall Street people because that was, in his mind, the economy. The finance sector was the economy. And so we've expanded from that bubble a little bit, but not really all that much. And the World War II buildup Zach's talking about, there's this great book called Freedom's Forge that we both love. And it tells a story of uh, one character in that whole saga named Bill Knudsen, who was a factory floor engineer in Ford and ended up designing the assembly line and did all this great stuff. 
and managed to build the expertise to actually run, you know, a big major part of work. So going back to your question, like advice for youth, it's become someone like him. Cause I don't know who those people are. That, those are exactly the people that we wanted to try to find to run for office and get into government and redo this whole thing. But we are having trouble finding them. Yeah. We're, we're actually having a lot of trouble finding them. We found them, but they just were like, why would I go run for office and go into that cesspool? You know? <laughs> so it's hard, right? Because like, if you are interested in politics and care about these things, like you are more than likely to major in political science right. or get a JD right. and move to Washington. And it's difficult to do the sort of horizon expanding Overton window exploding type thinking if your entire world is like the world as it is, not like the world as it could be. So uh, a question on this theme is in political science. And when you think about the history of foreign affairs and public policy, the things that are actually really exciting that get most students into this space are the big kind of earth shattering Overton window shattering ideas. What do you mean? What? Because so the things that got myself and my peers excited about policy and, and politics was at, at its core, the idea that you could do a massive amount of good by going into government and trying to do either the day-to-day business of working for a member of Congress and passing legislation or working as a diplomat or working on the National Security Council. Like, but I, I have a question. Where had you seen an example in recent history of somebody going in and to those positions and doing a massive amount of good. So I I tend to be pretty enamored by the the civil servants who make things run. I spent a lot of time over the last couple of years reading diplomatic histories and memoirs. And those people I think actually do a massive amount of good within a pretty rigid and hierarchical bureaucracy. And what's an example? And I'm, I'm not challenging. I'm not saying nobody's ever sure. done any good. I just want to know where your head is at. What was an example where somebody did a bunch of good that way? So most recently, I've been rereading former president of Carnegie, now CIA director Bill Burns. With the release of his memoir, he declassified a bunch of cables or a bunch of cables were declassified. And one of them is this really remarkable cautionary cable about the state of politics in Iraq. It's titled Iraq, the Perfect Storm. And it was a memo he wrote with some other senior officials to Secretary of State Colin Powell. And it was clairvoyant about the set of issues that the the U.S. government was going to face in Iraq from a, a diplomatic perspective, a national security perspective. And the idea that one could do that work right to be on the ground to write the memo that changes someone's mind and that kind of alters history in some ways i think really attractive being part of that game yeah i i totally identify with that that it's when you're in the mix in u.s foreign policy for example so many lives at stake so many decisions can cost so many lives one way or the other. And being that person who can be that voice of reason at the right moment can be a huge thing. But isn't it depressing, though, that it's like Casablanca. Casablanca is this terrible mess, right? But these two very different heroes, one kind of good, one kind of evil, but not really evil, just... And they do a couple things, and they save some lives and, and make a bit of a difference. But it's in the context of this 
bigger world that's just a complete evil mess. And I feel if the world is going to continue being the way it is, right, and if American foreign policy is going to continue being the way it is, and we're just going to keep randomly blowing up nations from time to time out of confusion, then, yeah, it is really important for you to be there because you could save a bunch of lives in a moment when some president is going to be do, do something incredibly stupid. But I would rather us have a real political movement that gets us to a place where we stop making these insanely dumb and obvious mistakes and just be a good country that doesn't destroy other nations. And so I feel like there's a chance that we can have a real political revolution, as Bernie would say. And I'm, I'm not talking about Bernie's political revolution. We have a democracy. We can elect a whole new kind of people. And then we can say, no, we're not going to blow up any countries this decade. Thank you very much. And that's a way to save millions of lives, not just 100 here and 100 there. So... I'm going to disagree a little with Zach. And just in that, I really think, Vishnu, like, this is something you are passionate about. And I think it would be great, actually, for someone who is open to new ideas. Because when that, say, political revolution happens, you're going to be someone in government who is willing yeah. to allow it to happen. And I think it's great to have people like you in there. And I think Strassman from the Weimar Republic, you know, kind of almost held things together until he died. And he was a civil servant who basically almost stopped the rise of Hitler. And that would have been amazing if he didn't die too soon. So there are civil servants, I think, who have done great things. But I agree, it's like in the context of a larger thing, so people also have to work on changing the larger context. But I don't think we should take away from the people that are just fighting to hold things together in the context yeah. of what we got, right? And, and I'd rather be people like you in there doing that than the people who want to bomb every country. And the truth is that a, a, a couple well-placed civil servants in 2003 could have prevented the Iraq war. And, and when you read the accounts of how we went to war in Iraq, there were so many civil servants that were just like, this is so stupid, but they were afraid to speak up and they just didn't speak their minds at moments when they should have. And Colin Powell, it's the biggest regret of his life that he didn't speak his mind more strongly in that moment, but he was all alone. And if the people around him had been backing him up because it takes a lot of courage. Obviously, Colin Powell was not lacking in courage, so that shows you how much courage you need to go up against everybody that you're working with in a presidential administration that really wants to go to war. But it was hanging in the balance, and just a few more voices could have really made a huge difference there. Gonna... What I think is really important, though, is whatever you do and all these, all the young people listening who are going to work their way up through various kinds of really important bureaucracies. And by the way, I love that you talk about bureaucracies on, in the, on this show. The important thing is that you do have to have courage and you have to be willing to support your boss and support your colleagues and sometimes just support yourself in saying the important and scary things to say because other people are going to disagree with you and it might even risk your job. If bureaucrats are not willing to risk their jobs, that's when we get really terrible outcomes in this world. One reason why AOC was so amazing as a first-year legislator is that she was willing to take risks. But another big reason is that Shoykat and Corbin and other people on her staff were willing to take risks. And there were all these moments when other new members of Congress who were in exactly the same mindset as AOC and wanted to participate in some of these exciting things didn't. And the, when it all shook out, it was because the people that were working for them were typical kind of political handlers from when they were state reps or city council people or whatever. And they were just so risk averse and so um, afraid to give that advice that might not, 
you know, that might backfire or might not work out as planned. Sorry, that didn't feel like it was worth getting in the way of your joke. <laughs> no, I think courage. Courage is good advice. Yeah. I, I want to apologize to my listeners because on the last episode, I said I try not to push past an hour 15. If you made it this, like, this is probably the most indulgent podcast we've done. <laughs> I want to know what song you're going to end this episode with. The, the song that was the big hit when, when I was in China was Alibaba. And I think this is why Jack Ma named his company Alibaba. It was just the song that basically just repeated the word Alibaba over and over. Every Chinese person over a certain age will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we have to find it. And I think that should be the song. Okay. For... <laughs> right. I, will, I will hunt that down. This new Shoikot Zach takes so much to be part of China Talk. Live your best lives. Go out and change the world.